This is a message from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. Grace Church is affiliated with Sovereign Grace Ministries. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. The speaker for this message is Rob Tombrella, pastor at Grace Church. You can take your Bible out and turn in your Bible to 1 Corinthians. This is a, a book in the New Testament that uh, we're in a series called Empowered, and we're looking at how God's love through the Holy Spirit empowers us in varied ways. So if you could turn and in the book of 1 Corinthians, turn to chapter 13. You know, losing focus can be very embarrassing. I don't know if you've ever experienced it quite like I did as a, as a sophomore in high school. When you've got to run the 40 as fast as you can in baseball offseason and everybody's timing you. And as a sophomore in high school, man, I was just a late bloomer. And uh, so I was just this tiny guy that tried to, was trying to get in with all these guys that were much bigger than I was. And so we're, we're being timed in the 40 for baseball offseason. And these guys are just running so much faster than I am. And so when the coach says go, I know I've got to go as hard and run as fast as I possibly can. So all I'm thinking about is speed. Pick them up, put them down. Pick them up, put them down. As fast as I possibly can to the finish line. So the coach says go. And I went. And I ran as hard and as fast as I possibly could in a few short seconds. Possibly about four seconds. Just kidding. And I ran and I ran and I ran straight into the coach right into him. And his words were, whoa, whoa, Tombrella. Open up your eyes, Tombrella. I still remember his, his words to me right there in that moment. And it was a, a great life lesson that the energy and, and, and effort and excitement without aim and focus can be embarrassing. And it can hurt you. I think I got hurt that day. I think I definitely hurt the coach. And it can be hurtful in the church. It can be hurtful in your family. It can be hurtful in your community group. Running as hard as you can without your eyes opened can hurt people. And what we've been studying in, in the book of 1 Corinthians 12 and 13, and we're in verses 13, 8 through 13 today, is that Paul tells the Corinthian church, open your eyes. Look around. You, you're, you've got a lot of effort. You've got a lot of energy. You've got a lot of excitement. But you don't have any aim and you don't have any focus. And I believe God would say that to some of us today. Open your eyes. You've got a lot of energy, but you're, you're losing focus. You're losing aim. And so what I would like to do is just read the first few verses, a very familiar chapter in the Bible. This is read and preached at a lot of weddings. But we're going to try to put it in a little bit of context today if you're new to this, this series, if you're new with, new with us today. So I'm going to put verses 8 through 13 in context. Let's just read that and pray, and then we'll get started. Paul says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant 
or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Father, we ask that you would make the principle of love, God's love, that you would just bring that principle home to us today, Lord, that we wouldn't keep grabbing at small expressions of love and small and partial, unfulfilled instruments and mechanisms and structures and gifts by which we love you and by which we love others and make that the main thing. Rather, God, would you put your love on display today in Jesus Christ? May you open up our eyes, Lord. And we not be closed and, and narrow our focus so, so narrowly that we, we miss it. And we hurt each other. We hurt the people that we, we most want to love and that you want us to love. So we need your help to do that. And we ask that you open up our eyes to this word in Jesus' name. Amen. I believe the, the whole focus of this section are those three words in verse 8. Love never ends. So what Paul wants to tell this church that that's, gets so distracted into so many different things, this church is distracted by gifts, distracted by gifts of the Spirit, distracted by hierarchy and distracted by cliques and people who have and people who have not, people who are wealthy and people who are poor. This, this church is just simply losing focus. It's to say that love never ends. He just wants to elevate this, this idea of love never ending. Never ending. There is something in the universe that never ends. That's eternal, that is abiding, and that is infinite. And it says, he says it's love. Now, we, we've all read this verse. We've all been to... to um, Weddings where we've heard that love is patient, kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it's not arrogant. And we've, we've heard that from a pulpit or, you know, two people are getting married and we think, well, we can do this thing. I mean, I can be patient. After all, that's what love is. And when I'm committing myself to my bride or the bride's committing to the husband, well, we can not be envy and we can choose not to boast. And, and we can, after all, if we're committed enough, we cannot be arrogant or rude. And we can be people that don't insist on our own way or not irritable or resentful. And that lasts for probably about 30 seconds, maybe the first dance of the reception. And then we realize, oh, wait, I do insist on my own way. I am irritable. And I am resentful. So what do we do then? What do we do when we discover that our love just doesn't quite do it? Our love just doesn't quite make it. In the great theological film, The Dark Knight, (laughs) Batman and the Joker have a theological discussion. And Batman tries to tell the Joker that the good people of Gotham have this inherent moral fiber that will rise up against the Joker's evil schemes. And the Joker responds this way. He says, you see, their morals, their codes, 
It's a bad joke. Dropped at the first sign of trouble. They're only as good as the world allows them to be. I'll show you. When the chips are down, these civilized people, they'll eat each other. Jokers actually kind of got it right in that moment. That our love, even towards the people that we most love, often is like a bad joke. Dropped at the first sign of trouble. When the chips are down, we discover that we don't love quite like we wish we did. And we need something else. We need something to come from a perfect source to us because it certainly doesn't spark from within us up to God and out towards others. We need something divine. We need something supernatural. And that's where the hope of the New Testament, which you're holding in your hand, comes in. This is where the hope comes in. See, over and over again in the New Testament, in the Bible, love is described as that. It's not described as something that comes up from within us, that God loves us because we've got this divine Disney-like spark in us that makes us great people, that helps us to rise up against evil and conquer things like that. Love is always described in the Bible as coming down from God. It's always described as originating and in and from God towards people who don't love God and who don't love other people on their own. First John describes it like this. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. He does not say love is God. Like that's what the culture does with love. Deify it idolize it, turn it into a golden calf and dance around it and create movies about it and sing about it. And it's just this concept of love, that love is this God, this deity. And he says, no, that's not the case. He says, God is love and love flows from God. It's, it's his essence. It's his character. It's who he is. And whoever loves like he loves, loves God like God loves God and loves people like God loves people. These people are born of God. These people know God. And anyone who does not have this love just does not love God and does not know God. You see, in Dallas, which is just a microcosm of the United States, Dallas, love is a reduction. It's just this narrowed, tiny, reduced form of a feeling that I get from somebody to be consumed on myself. We live in a consumer culture. Sir, surely you know that. If you've lived and, and just kind of looked around and been aware of our surroundings, or if you've been overseas at any, any point in your life, you recognize that kind of where we live, it's consumer mentality, consumer culture. It's, we watch shows like Man vs. Food, and you, that's kind of the idea that we have towards all of life. How much can I consume? Where can I consume it? How much can I get and, and let it terminate on myself and reduce it down to a feeling, a chemical feeling that I can feel that we want this feeling so bad. We want something to never end. We want this chemical to 
take shape in us and move us forward. And we just want it to never stop. We'll do anything to get this feeling. Rihanna captures this well in her song, We Found Love in a Hopeless Place. She says, and we're standing side by side. As your shadow crosses mine, this is what it takes to come alive. It's the way I'm feeling. I just can't deny. She says, I can't deny this feeling when your shadow crosses mine. I can't deny this this chemical feeling that I feel inside. We found it in this hopeless place where I was looking for it or Surprised by it. Here it is. The chemical came back to me, Rihanna says. And here it is. Now, if I can just hold on to it and maintain it, if it will just never go away from me, if I could wrap my arms around it and carry it everywhere that I go, it could keep me alive. It makes me alive and maybe it can keep me alive. The culture knows that this, this, this feeling, even though it's reduced in its reduced form, has an authority and a power over our lives like no drug being trafficked today. Tons of drugs being trafficked. No drug like this drug. We are junkies for this drug. Junkies. Entertainment junkies. Cultural junkies. We want this feeling so bad. Listen to this song by The Wanted. Number two song on iTunes right now. Glad you came. The sun goes down. This is the cosmic form of this junkie love that we're looking for. The sun goes down, they write. And the stars come out. And all that counts is here and now. (laughs) My universe will never be the same. I'm glad you came. They don't quite say it like that, but they don't quite have that inflection in the song. You cast a spell on me, spell on me. You hit me like the sky fell on me, fell on me. And I decided you look well on me, well on me. So let's go somewhere no one else can see you and me. I don't think they're having a Bible study or a prayer meeting. It's a spell. Get it? You cast this spell on me. And it feels... I'm feeling something when this spell is on me. I, I, I feel something. I can't deny. It's like the sky falls down and no one else can see. So let's capture it right now. My universe is never going to be the same. So we think. It's all wrapped up right here. It's all that counts is right now. But what happens when the spell runs out? What happens the next morning? What happens when the buzz wears off? Well, here's what the culture does when it discovers that love ends. Love stops. They do a couple of things. I, I think they despise it. So they write new songs. We could have had it all. <laughs> we could have had it all. But that's okay. What doesn't kill us makes us stronger. These are all songs in Craig's iPod, by the way. Just kidding. People despise it. For crying out loud, we fell out of it. We had it. I had my arms around it. And now it's not here anymore. It's gone. 
We fell out of love. But we are so used to falling in love and falling out of love, now we can manipulate this thing. We can completely manipulate it. You can get on the internet at WikiHow and learn how to fall out of love. No, no kidding. Here are the four, first four steps I'm going to share with you. Ready? Here's how you can fall out of love if you're ready. Um, make a list of all the reasons it was never meant to be. Okay? Remove as many traces of their presence as you can. Distance yourself and practice thought stopping. Those are the first four ways that you can do it. You could manipulate it when you hate it. The feeling came and it went. It was like that, that uncle that just comes over at Christmas, eats all the food. Don't give the uncle money. You gave him money again. Now he's gone and he'll be back in a year or two asking for some more money and we'll fall for the trick again. But we are junkies. And the second thing the culture does is it always goes back because we cannot deny the desire and the feelings of love. We'll always go back. No matter how many times, no matter how many times our hearts are broken by what the world offers in its temporary form of love, people will just keep going back to it. Because the feelings can be denied. We were talking to a, a man that was my neighbor a few years ago. And he was giving me his reasons why he was leaving his wife for another woman that he worked with. I told her on Christmas, Merry Christmas. His, his reasons were, she makes me feel young. That was his justification to both his wife and to me. She makes me feel, get it? She makes me feel young. I just want to say, you are, you are, I bet she does make you feel young. Because you're acting like about five years old right now. So I don't deny that she makes you feel very young. He can't, he, he's like, how can I resist this? It's an authority. Get that? It's an authority in the culture. You, you, you hang on to it as long as you can. And if you fall out of it, you just chase down wherever that feeling will come back and wherever you can arrive back at that feeling and you authorize that thing and, and it becomes your God. It becomes the defining thing about you because we've got to get this thing right. There's this story in the Bible about a woman who chased this feeling in the arms of relationship after relationship after relationship and after heartbreak after heartbreak after heartbreak and she just ever, couldn't ever find the love. And then she meets up with Jesus at this well. And she's going to the well to drop her, her, you know, her bucket down into the well and draw water. And Jesus says to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will, will never be thirsty again. And some of, some of you just need to hear that. Never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And then he just kind of discloses to her that he knows everything about her. And he, he knows every person that she's tried to find 
love in. She's been chasing this thing down just like she has to go continually and draw up water out of this well. And Jesus says, I want to put a well in you. I want water to well up, up from within you. I don't want you to keep chasing this in the temporary forms. I want you to find the kind of love that never ends and never stops and never fails, some of your translations will say. The kind of love that goes on and on and on and only improves and wells up like a spring of water. See, the, the woman's problem was that she was thirsty and she just couldn't find her thirst quenched in any of these relationships. And that's the culture's problem as well. It's not that they're thirsty. It's just that they can't ever find anywhere to drink. They don't know where to, where to turn. So they keep despising it, but keep, keeps coming back and they keep chasing after. This is what Paul is saying in, in verse 8. This is the opposite of the kind of love that God gives. The kind of love that Jesus gives never ends. The kind of love that is embodied in Christ never ends because Jesus is the fulfillment of verses 4 through 7. Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of patience and of kindness. Jesus never envied and he never boasted and he was never arrogant and he was never rude and he never insisted on his own way and he was never irritable and he was never resentful and he never rejoiced at wrongdoing and he always rejoiced in the truth and he bore all things and he believed all things and he hoped all things and he endured all things and he endured it all the way to the cross and into a tomb and up out of the tomb to put that love in us, to put a well of his love in us. He did that to make us truly alive, not to just kind of blink at life or see life from the outside, but actually to put heaven's life in us, to put new life into people that don't have life. That's why Jesus came, and that's why he fulfilled perfectly this way of love in chapter 13, and then says, I'm going to recreate it in you. I'm going to put this in you so you don't have to keep going to despised places anymore. You don't have to keep chasing it down. You don't have to keep dropping that bucket down into a broken well and come up and just say, oh, just a couple of drops. And I'll have to come back to this well over and over again. Jesus says, I want to put something in you that will cause you to never thirst again. See, we live around people in our neighborhood, people that we work with, people in our family, and you, you, you see this in their lives. They're just dropping that bucket down again and again and again. You, it, they do it through relationships. They do it through the next purchase, the next toy, the next thing. Sometimes it's in the next career. Sometimes it's in the next house. Sometimes it's, it's just looking, it's just somewhere beyond us. Still haven't found what I'm looking for. So I'm looking for it over here and here. And you, you can see that. And, and we've got the well of water rising up within us. And God wants us to pour that out on people who need to hear the life-changing truth that there is a love, verse 8 says, that never ends and never goes away. Well, what does end? What does end? Here's how he contrasts this in verse 8. What ends? Well, here's what he says, ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. And the the strong language, they will be abolished. 
As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. So what he says in verse 8 is he just picks three things that they are so excited about this Corinthian church. They are so revved up and ramped up about these things. They're so excited about prophecy, so excited about tongues, so excited about our knowledge and all this kind of things. And, and Paul just says, you know what? These things that you're so elevating as central to your life and experience as a church, get this, uh, they're all going to cease. They're all gonna, they've all got a shelf life. Every single one of those things has an expiration date. You know how you look inside your fridge and you pull out the, bo- the, the thing of milk and you look on the expiration date and you're like, oh, I can't, I can't drink that. Or at least my wife says she can't drink that. I drink it. <laughs> you just smell it. That's all you got to do. Smell it if it's okay. But it has an expiration date. And, and Paul says that's what prophecies has an expiration date. A gift of speaking to people, that's going to expire. Tongues, the gift of speaking to God, that's going to expire. Knowledge, a gift of understanding God's truth in this form is going to expire. And, uh, and that might be disheartening to these Corinthians because they are placing a lot of weight into these things. But when we think about them expiring and ceasing, it's not quite like a gallon of milk that like turns and ceases to be good. I don't think Paul has that in mind, as if you know, they're going to spoil... And, and these good things by which we understand and know God and love God and pray to God and the way that we serve one another, that they, these things are just going to spoil, kind of like cheese or milk in your fridge. Not quite like that, but more like a telescope ceases to be needed when you're standing on the moon. More like that. Not ceases to be good, just ceases to be needed. I mean, when you've got the pamphlet for Disneyland, it ceases to be needed when you're riding Space Mountain. The pamphlet was great, needed, helpful, hopeful. Um, Before you hit Disneyland, you want as many of those pamphlets as possible. You want to see what it's about. You want to experience it as best you can prior to getting into the park. But once you're on Space Mountain brochures and the pamphlets and everything else, they just forget it. You're, you're on the ride. That's what Paul says is going to happen with all these, these gifts that they're so revved up about. Well, why does he say that? Look at verse 9. For, here's the reason why. Here's why they will cease. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. That's how he describes tongues and prophecy and knowledge. It's in part. We know in part. In a partial form of knowing, we know. So he says, we do know truly, but we don't know fully. We know truly, but we know in part. We prophesy and it's helpful. We prophesy truly and helpfully and encouragingly and it builds one another up. But, but, temper that, we prophesy in part, partially Corinthians. They see, they're they're thinking it's the fullness right now, man. We've got it going on right now. It's heaven on earth. And Paul says, it's not heaven yet. And, And don't confuse the partial with the fullest expression or the fullest form of what you're experiencing right now, which is what they are tempted to do and what we are tempted to do. We gravitate to a good, great, partial thing. And Paul says, this is in part. It will pass away. The partial will 
pass away. Now, what does he mean when he says, when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away? What is the perfect? There's different ideas about what the perfect is. Some people think it's like a place of maturity as a Christian, this side of eternity before the return of Jesus Christ. Other people believe the the, the perfect is the closing of the canon in which the scripture is fully written and fully developed. And then once we have the perfect, then all those other gifts pass away. I don't think it... It's describing that, and here's, here's why. Look at verse 10. When the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Now, he's going to give an illustration of what he's talking about in verse 11. Now, just follow his thought process. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. Now, he's not putting down prophecy or or tongues or knowledge as childish. So don't think he's calling those kinds of things immature. He's using an illustration of development and growth to describe what happens when something's partial to when something's fulfilled. It's, It's the difference between a child and somebody that hits puberty and then heads up into adulthood. And once you are an adult, you can't, you can't go back into childhood physically. Once you've passed on that, you can't go back in. I know there's a lot of men today that try to head back into puberty, try to live in that place, but physically you can't do it. And that's kind of what Paul's saying here. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, but when I became a man, developmentally, when I became a man, I gave up childish ways, something transformed and I developed. And so he's talking about something that's kind of like a radical personal transformation. He's using an illustration, but I think he's using a human illustration because he's talking about something that is very dramatic in verse 12. He says, something happened to my speech when I became a man. Something happened to my thinking when I became a man. Something happened to my reasoning and something happened to my ways when I became a man. There a total transformation happened to me developmentally. A transformation, radical. That's what he says in verse 11. And here's why 11 is connected to 12. And he says, for now we see in a mirror dimly. So he just used this illustration and then he says, for now. So now he is, he's comparing what happens when you become from a child to a man to what happens when you transform from the current experience and the use of the gifts to a developed place, a new experience at the return of Christ. Why do I say the return of Christ? For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. So the when of verse 10 is the then of verse 12. Does everybody see that? When the perfect comes. Well, what's he talking about? What is the perfect The when of verse 10 is the then of verse 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. So there's a future experience that Paul is reminding the Corinthians because they're so wrapped up in the abyss and the cave of the present. They're stuck in the present. They can't get their minds off the good and great gifts that God has given in the present to see beyond that there's a future then. So now we're experiencing these good things, but then, then we shall see face to face. 
Now we know in part, but then we shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So he's describing something that is not just, he's not describing what we experience in our quiet time with our completed and sufficient Bible. We don't need this, this text here at all to, to uphold the doctrine of the sufficiency and the completion of the canon, the sufficiency of Scripture, because none of us are experiencing this. This is just reality. None of us are experiencing God face to face. You know, when we open up the Scripture, it's all mediated through through the Bible. We experience God, but we experience God in a mediated form through the Word of God. But he's saying in an unmediated way, in verse 12, we will experience God, Corinthians. We will experience God. He is pro-experience. If you're not for experience, I, 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 I think you're denying something that's true of the way God's wired you. You are for experience. And God is for you experiencing God. He's for that. He is for that. He does not want you detached and cold and, and distant from feelings of experience. But he wants us to think about the fullest expression. For now we see dimly, but then face to face, we'll experience his presence face to face. Face to face. Our face to the face of God in Jesus Christ. Now I know in part, and he's not saying knowledge is bad. It's a wonderful thing. But then I shall know fully. He doesn't mean totally. It's not like our first moment that we see Jesus, we'll see all that we'll ever see. He just means unhindered, unhindered by sin, unhindered by bad ideas, unhindered by our own physical bodies. Then we're going to see him fully, even as I have been fully known. You just think about that. He's saying God knows you fully. He knows you to where Jesus says every hair on your head. He knows how many hairs you have on your head which is kind of comforting for me. He knows how many I have left. I mean, God knows you. Think about that. Jesus told his disciples, don't, don't worry. You are more valuable than many sparrows. All the hair of your head are, are numbered and counted. I know you fully. And one day that's going to be our experience. And every believer who has this hope hungers and thirsts for God and seeks to know God, one day that desire is going to be fulfilled. You're going to see God fully. You're going to see him face to face. You're going to experience the fullness of his presence. That's what Paul's trying to remind these Corinthians. You don't get caught up in the partial when you've got the fulfillment just around the corner. So what is the perfect? Let me summarize the perfect this way. The perfect is your new life in God's new world. The perfect that he's talking about is your new life. You're going to have a new life in God's new world. Your hunger, don't deny the fact that you want a new world. That's just a manifestation of God's design. Yes, you want a new world. Yes, you want a new life. The Bible understands this clearly. This is the hope that's laid out in 1 John. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. When we see him as he is, we will be like him. We will be transformed into his his image. 
face to face, when we see him face to face, we'll experience a radical physical transformation, which is why I think that Paul is talking about some physical development that happens very quickly, a a transformation in speech, a transformation in thinking, a transformation in reasoning, a transformation in ways. All of a sudden we'll be changed. He says later in this very book, I tell you a mystery, hard to understand, okay, hard to get, but he says the mystery, we shall not all sleep, we shall all be changed. Now this is change you can believe in. In a political year, everybody's looking for change. Here's change you can believe in. We shall not all sleep. We shall be changed, every one of us, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will, it'll be better than that, the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we shall be changed instantly, for the perishable body must put on imperishable, for this mortal body must put on immortality. This is what drives you to see all your science fiction movies. There's a bunch of there's Trekkie nerds in this building. There always are. I know you're, you're out there. Um, Star Wars people. Everybody, that's what drives this whole idea of science fiction. That's what drives so much of entertainment is the hunger for a new world, the hunger for change. What would life be like in a completely different setting, in a con- completely different world, if I was a completely different person? C.S. Lewis says, if you find that desire in you, this experience in this world that nothing can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that you were made for another world. That's what you're made for. You're made for a new world. Paul says, don't lose sight of the new world that's coming. There's a perfect world coming. Don't get wrapped up and overly focused on the good things that he gives us in this world. So how should this priority and understanding of love change us? Well, look at verse 13. So now faith, hope, and love abide. In other words, he says these things remain. They, they remain on these three, but the greatest of these is love. And there's a lot of speculation. What does he mean by the greatest of these is love? I think he just means love is always described as something that comes from God and through God, and it's the way that God is described, and so it's elevated in these three things. God is described in 1 John as God is love. He is this. <clears throat> so he's elevating love above all things. So a, a few things, and we're going to take some time of prayer. And our community group leaders are going to come up here in a moment. Jeff's going to lead us to play some music. And you're welcome to, to stay seated and pray if you'd like. But we're just going to take some time and, pr- and pray. And I wonder if, if you would like to pray about any, any number of these things. How should this priority change us? I think, first of all, we need to fight to believe that God is love. I think we can assume that we believe that. Or we can believe it for all the wrong reasons, which is just as bad and leaves us just as dry. Because there's a lot of people out there that will tell you today that God loves you. But where they center God's love is you. And, and the reason God loves you is just you're so lovely. You're so lovable. You're so good. Right on. And you know you're not. You know you're not. When the chips are down, you know you don't have this love. 
you know you're not lovely. But we need to know that God loves us. Well, God does love us. And we know that God loves us because he sent his son to die on the cross for us, to wipe away our guilt and wipe away our shame and to put his love in us and to love us forever because of his initiative and because of his grace. To place grace on us makes us lovely, makes us lovable, makes us beautiful, makes us noble, makes us good, makes us right. We want to be good. We want to say to one another that we're good. We want to finally be able to believe that about ourselves, that we are good. But unfortunately, oftentimes our goodness is told, we're, we're told, we'll look inside and, and, and search within and somehow, some way, you'll reach in there and you'll find the Disney magic. It's in there somewhere. If you just reach far enough and deep enough, you'll find that thing that makes you so lovely. And Paul would say with John, that is that, that's not where it's found. It's in grace that's placed on you in Jesus. It's found in his spirit coming upon you and giving you new life and giving you a new righteousness and a new goodness that God speaks over you. I mean, there's, there's more to say on that. Let's, but you need to fight to believe this. I think so much of our, our, our challenges in the Christian life is that we... We say we believe this, but we really struggle deep down to believe that God is for me and that God loves me, that he delights in me. We're often just confused because we're trying to find something in us that makes us lovely and makes us lovable rather than just recognizing that God loves me because of his love, because of the freeness and the overflowing spontaneity of his love. That's, that's why he loves us, because he is love. We fail to recognize that it's his heart and not our heart that commends us to his love, that makes us lovely. Is his heart. I spoke to a, a woman years ago when I was a youth pastor, and she said this about her seventh grader who she was having a hard time with. I don't condemn this thought. If you've ever thought this, you're not condemned. Here, here's, what, here's her statement, though. Um, I, I love him, but I just don't like him. I love him. Rob, but I just don't like him. And she kind of felt like that was okay. It's okay to be. It's, it's not okay. We need to repent of that. That's, that's our, it's not that you've never felt that, but you, you need to repent of that where you, where you don't delight. Where you think love is not a, an affection and not a delight. As if you can just kind of separate that in your heart. You can't. And God doesn't do that. I mean, a revolution, a transformation happens when we recognize that, that God doesn't feel that way about us. It's not that God... God loves me, but he, he resents me. He despises me while he loves me. It's not true. God loves us and he delights in his love for us. He delights in his love for us because he's placed his grace on us. We're creating his image, yes, but then he places his grace over his image bearers. And he says, they're mine forever. And I don't just love them in some kind of a distant way. I like them. Secondly, I think we need to resist loving any practice like the Corinthians, any philosophy, any form, any style, any preference, any gift more than we love God or more than we love making disciples. So just pick your, pick your poison. What do you gravitate to personally? What do you gravitate to as a community group? What do we gravitate to as a church that we could be tempted to love 
like the Corinthians were tempted to love, more than we love Jesus. This was the problem back in Isaiah's day. People loved offerings, they loved incense, they loved new, new moons and Sabbaths, and solemn assemblies, and appointed feasts, and they loved to spread out their hands and many prayers. And Isaiah said, that's not manifesting God's love. Manifesting God's love is actually loving people. <laughs> I mean, that's where he says, correct oppression, seek justice, and plead the widow's cause. Love, be a loving people. Don't, don't fall for the form or the partial. Actually be this way. And lastly, I think we should let the future world that Paul speaks of release us risk-takingly into this current world. Let the future world release us into the present world. We, we, we do this. We try to create our best life now and then condemn the people that write multiple books, um, million-dollar books describing your best life now. We do this, don't we? we? We try to preemptively create and make heaven now rather than just thinking it's, it's a future reality, Paul says. And, and my job now is to love God and love the church and love the lost in a risky way. Throw myself into it with all my heart. Jonathan Edwards wrote a sermon about this and he describes heaven as, uh, as a world of love. That's the title of his sermon. And let me close with this. He says, and and this renders heaven a world of love. That's what Paul says. It's a recreated world. When Jesus returns, we see him face to face. It's a world of love. He says, it's a world of love for God is the fountain of love as the sun is the fountain of light. So all light that we have, one source pouring down on the earth. And this is the way heaven is with God's love coming from God. Therefore, the glorious presence of God in heaven fills heaven with love as the sun placed in the midst of the visible heavens in a clear day fills the world with light. See, that future hope, that reality fueled Paul, fueled the early church, should fuel us I mean, think about it this way. When Paul said, the hope that the perishable will put on the imperishable, I mean, just think about this with, with, if you've got a dying loved one right now who's a Christian, and I do. Think about the hope. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up. In victory. Where is your victory, death, and your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And that hope fuels him into this present world. That future hope makes him say in the very next verse, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast. Be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Translation, pour yourself into loving people. Pour yourself into manifesting 
the love that you will experience in its fullest form in the new world right now in your presence. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit www.gracechurchfrisco.org. 